At this time, I ask you to kneel with me. Let's have a word of prayer together before we get into our subject matter uh, for today. So I invite you um, to um, join me uh, as we seek the Lord together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. Father, we thank you so very, very much for providing such a beautiful Sabbath day for us to come together and worship. Uh, We thank you so much for providing for all of our needs, our temporal needs. We have homes, many of us. For those who don't, we pray that you be very near to them. We pray, Lord, and thank you for uh, providing the, the food that we need, the clothing, all these things. So we recall Matthew 6.33 that if we seek ye first, seek your kingdom and your righteousness first, that all these temporal needs are, they will be taken care of and you are faithful to that promise. Father, we, we thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes and lives within our hearts and our minds and, and uh, pricks our hearts when needed and teaches us and helps to keep us on the straight and narrow. We're thankful for the angels that you provide to to protect us and to also uh, help us in our daily walk and uh, uh, that surround our homes and keep us safe from the enemy. We're very thankful, most of all, uh, for the Savior, Jesus, who decided to come and become like one of us. And and you willingly, uh, Lord, though it was a struggle, gave him to us for all eternity. We're so thankful that Jesus lived a righteous life and, and it gives us hope that we, through grace and, and the Spirit, may live as He has shown us. We're thankful that He died at Calvary and, and spilled His blood, that uh, we may have the forgiveness of our sins. We pray for that forgiveness now, Lord. We praise Jesus for gaining the victory over sin and the devil and over death. And we have this hope and the hope of those that we know, that we love, who have passed, of seeing them again. And on Resurrection Day, when Jesus returns, that's a blessed hope. Lord, we pray for those who are on their way to houses of worship. Please be with Carl and and, uh, Valerie. Give them travel mercies as they had to detour this morning. Pray for a blessing upon them. Uh, Lord, we lift up before you the prayer requests this morning. Of course, we pray uh, personally. We pray for our son Joshua and the decisions he's making, uh, life partner that uh, he has chosen. We pray, Lord, that uh, eyes will be opened and and these things will be clearly understood and a right decision will be made. Um, We pray, Lord, for Jerry's daughter, Kelly. Uh, She's moved out but having difficulties with the landlord and getting her belongings. We lift up her friend Bob, who's got questions. We pray that uh, and ask humbly the Holy Spirit will be with Jerry, that um, she'll be able to have an answer to give and be with Bob and open his heart up to the truth. Uh, we pray that Jerry will be continue to be a good witness to those around her as she works and for all of us, Lord, that we may be uh, a living epistle and Jesus' character is written on our hearts. And we, we pray especially this morning for uh, Keegan 
and uh, his family. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, they will be drawn closer to Jesus, that there will be healing and praises given to you for the miracles that you are so willing to wrought in their lives and in our lives. Lord, above all, as we study the Word this morning, we look to Jesus and we study about this great mystery. Pray that our hearts and eyes will be open to the truth. The Holy Spirit will guide and direct us that we may accept it and share it. We thank you, Lord, so much for hearing our prayers. We ask it in the blessed name of Jesus, who is worthy. Amen. Throughout time, and uh, I think uh, you'll agree with me, uh, there have been incredible mysteries that that we have not been able to unravel. <laughs> Isn't that true? Unsolved mysteries that grab the attention of even the most casual of observers. You know, uh, talking about Carl and, and Valerie traveling down here and there's uh, a... Uh, a wreck on the interstate with fatalities and and uh, you know people want to see what's going on you know uh, you have the uh, rubberneckers that's where that phrase comes from you know you want to see what's going on it's a mystery and you want to solve it and you want to know and you want to question and uh, these things they grab the attention uh, of uh, the world there's so many reality shows on television that that it grabs people's attention they want to know they want to they they want to seek this out and and there are unsolved mysteries that that I, I think we would like to have solved uh, you know there there's one that's been in the news the last few months and I don't know you know it's not a headliner or anything but grabs my attention I like history but this grabs my attention it's a it concerns the disappearance of Amelia Earhart uh, if you're not familiar with her she was a woman pilot in the 40s and 50s she was attempting to fly around the world when she just disappeared somewhere in the South Pacific Ocean and they think they know the island that and they think that she landed on this reef and you know there are lots of theories and this is a mystery uh, that they're trying to solve there have as I've mentioned there have been television programs dedicated to solving you know, criminal mysteries and scientific mysteries, mysteries in nature. You know, we watched some nature uh, last night about the uh, ocean and sea creatures, and and scientists uh, were studying the whales, and and they just the whales where the whales go to mate is a mystery. They can't uh, track them. They don't know where that that happens. There are supernatural mysteries. Uh, people try to to solve and you know the the great conflict beloved between Christ and Satan is is for the minds of men isn't that true in this great controversy satan they they want he wants our mind jesus is battling satan for our mind and in the quest for answers to mysteries and the quest for answers that that we ask satan supplies whatever will lead people into error and away from the truth, especially the truth concerning God, especially the truth concerning the good news. There are untold mysteries that date back to the beginning of this world, but I want to speak to you about the great mystery. 
As Paul said to the church at Rome, he said, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. In Romans 11.25 I was speaking to a friend the other day, someone who I've uh, grown to love very much and become very attached to. And this friend has been disappointed. He's, he's, he's disappointed and he's discouraged a bit about the condition of so many churches in the Advent movement. And there's so much division, friends, and there's disunity. And, and it can be disheartening for even uh, those with the strongest of faith. And though it may seem gloomy, I want to encourage you, don't be glum. Our hope and our salvation is not in churches and in organizations, but in Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. The church is founded upon Christ. The church is important. But the church was organized for service. It is not the church that is our Savior. But Jesus Christ is. Going back to Romans 5, Paul said, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, the church died for us. Well, that's not what it says, is it? It's not the church that died for us, is it? Christ died for us, Paul says. He says, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So friends, let's not be discouraged, but let us rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, as Paul is saying, who has revealed to us the true character of the Father in heaven and has reconciled us to Him. Amen? Sometimes we do get discouraged. We see things. That's why we need to keep looking up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, we sang. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. Isn't that true? I encourage you, keep looking up. Look up to Jesus. You know, talking about that, the Pharisees of Jesus' day believed the church was a club for the saints. We still see that same attitude today. Sadly so. In many instances. But the church that Jesus came to establish was not a club for the saints, friends. It was a hospital where sinners would be changed and healed. I'll tell you, friends, we must never forget that. We must never forget that. You know, sometimes when we come to church, we look around at everyone else and we police his or her problems. That's what the Pharisees do. We're not to come to church and police the faults of others. I hope we come to look at Jesus, the great physician, 
Because we need healing. And Jesus wants to heal us from the sting of sin. And that Paul says, that in itself, he says, is the great mystery. That's the great mystery. That Jesus wants to heal us. How does that happen? What's the gospel about? Our scripture reading, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's the great mystery. God was manifested in the flesh. That's a mystery. Justified in the Spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Received up into glory. You know, I believe that Satan hates this verse of Scripture. I believe he hates it. Now, the devil doesn't like any part of of the Bible. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But there are certain parts that I believe he especially hates. In 1 Timothy 3.16, I think is one of those verses, uh, well, I believe that he hates. That he hates it with a passion. You know, in the early centuries before the printing press was invented, the only way you could get a copy of the New Testament was if somebody copied it out uh, by hand. There were professional copyists in those days. They were called scribes. There were many scribes who copied the entire New Testament. And I want to give you a heads up on this. And looking at 1 Timothy 3.16, I want to share something with you. Talking about these scribes and copies of the New Testament. There are over, do you know there are over 5,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament? Although not all of them are complete. You know, that's more than than the writings of any of the Greek philosophers or historians, you realize. In fact, there are more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient document. Now, in the ancient world, after after the time of the apostles, there were two places where a uh, gigantic apostasy developed against the, the, the faith, against the true Christian faith. One was in Rome, of course. Most people are familiar with that. The other was in Alexandria, Egypt. And in Egypt, by the 2nd and 3rd centuries, there developed a counterfeit Christianity. Now, because Egypt is, is a desert country, and it's so dry... Uh, many of the manuscripts from the 3rd and 4th uh, centuries were able to survive through to t- today. They didn't dissolve. They're still very fragile. Whereas, you know, you consider most of the other manuscripts from other parts of the Middle East where the climate wasn't so dry, um, their copies from the originals that are written from the scribes later on uh, from those other manuscripts... Now, in all the manuscripts, I want to tell you, we've got to be honest, beloved, of all the manuscripts, there are mistakes. There's mistakes in all of them. But in the Egyptian manuscripts, the mistakes aren't just random mistakes, but the type of mistakes that, that indicate that there was a conscious attempt by someone to weaken the testimony of the New Testament about the divinity of Jesus. And I'm bringing this up because we find it right here in 1 Timothy 3.16. And this is one 
of the major reasons why so many conservative Bible scholars for many years now have said that they do not have confidence in the Egyptian manuscripts. They instead have confidence in the great majority of the manuscripts of the New Testament from different areas. Sometimes these manuscripts are called the majority text or the received text. And this is important to understand. Because the text I believe is one that Satan hates with a passion is different in the Egyptian manuscripts. Now you'll notice the King James Version, which is what I read out of, in 1 Timothy 3.16 it says, God was manifest in the flesh. In the Egyptian manuscripts, the word God is left out. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that's important to know and understand? Well, let's see. You see, this is what they did. This is what they did. The word for God in the Greek language is theos. In the Greek language. The word for God is theos. If the two, the first two letters, now, for those who don't know in the Greek language, the letters TH is one letter in the Greek language. Okay? So if the first two letters, which would be TH and the E are removed, then just the letters O and S are left from Theos. So you're removing the T-H-E and you have O-S left. Now O-S in the Greek is a pronoun. And this makes the verse completely nonsensical then, doesn't it? There's no appropriate antecedent for this pronoun in the sentence then. So versions translated from the Egyptian manuscripts will read like this. Instead of God was manifest in the flesh, it says He was manifest in the flesh. Who is the He that is being spoken of? doesn't say that. It says He was manifest in the flesh. There's no person it points to. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You have to guess. And that's the point. But it doesn't say who the He is. But let me ask you something. Isn't each of us manifest in the flesh? We're flesh and bones, aren't we? But Jesus was And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh. Makes no sense. See? Now, the American Standard Version, I'm going to give you examples of this. The American Standard Version translates 1 Timothy 3.16 using the Egyptian manuscripts and reads this. For this verse, it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, received up in glory. That scripture makes absolutely no sense. doesn't tell you who the He is. Well, that's the American Standard Version. What about the Revised Standard Version many people use today? Well, you find that it's also uh, translated from Egyptian manuscripts. It reads, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. (laughs) He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Boy, that's a marked difference, isn't it? 
What about the New International Version? It does the same. It comes from the same manuscripts. Notice what they says. New, Te- New International Version for 1 Timothy 3.16. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. Was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. But in these instances, and from the Egyptian manuscripts, you don't know who's being spoken of. And friends, I'll tell you, the majority of the modern translations of the English Bible are translated from the Egyptian texts and are therefore not as accurate as Bibles that are translated from the great majority of Greek manuscripts. So friends, read, read 1 Timothy 3.16 in your Bible. If the word God is left out, it means that your Bible was translated from the Egyptian text. And I think it would be well to get a Bible that is more accurate, such as the King James Version. When I say more accurate, you find in the, these other manuscripts, the Received or the Majority Text, you find more uh, consistency. The errors usually you find is in, uh, in the grammar in some ways, but not in the, in the actual consistency of those manuscripts. Whereas the Egyptian manuscripts, there's all kinds of inconsistencies just between themselves. Well, the Bible tells us God is not the author of confusion. Now, the New Testament. The New Testament states unequivocally that Jesus is God. He's a divine person. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Speaking of birth of the Messiah, speaking about Mary, says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And again, this is the prediction that Mary, who was a virgin, would produce a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. His name was to be called Jesus. That's the Greek. Jesus. In the Hebrew language, it's Jehoshua. Or in the English, Jesus. And that name means a Savior or a Deliverer. Who is this Jesus who is going to save us from our sins? It says in Matthew Chapter 1 and verse 23. Just move down a couple verses. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. He is God. God with us. God in the flesh. And the New Testament states this, friends, over and over and over and over again. Jesus existed before He was born of Mary, friends. Now, I know for many of us that we already know that. We understand that. But I'm telling you, a majority of the world do not. There are fanaticisms, even within the Advent movement, that do not believe that. John chapter 1, verse 15. John bare witness of Him. 
and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Have you ever stopped and considered that scripture? Have you looked at it closely? You realize John the Baptist was a cousin to Jesus. He was also about six months older than Jesus. Yet he said that Jesus was before him. How could Jesus be before uh, John if he was six months younger? What was John saying? Well, for one thing, John knew that Jesus was the long-hoped-for Messiah. John knew that He was the Son of God. And what he was doing, he was referring to the divinity of Jesus. He was before me. He's from everlasting. Yes, the man standing before me, and if you look it up in the original languages, he uses two different Greek words there for before me. The one means he was standing there before me. The other means he was long present before me. John was calling people to repentance. Had great crowds coming. He was testifying to the divinity of the Messiah who had come was standing before him who had been before all. (laughs) Before this world existed. You know, Jesus Himself declares His divinity. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus said, And now, O Father, glorify Thou Me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. If you drop down almost 20 verses, John 17, 24, Jesus again, Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given Me be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory which Thou hast given Me. For Thou lovest Me before the foundation of the world. He loved Jesus before the world existed. So Jesus existed before the world existed. For He was before Me, John said. Well, how long before the world was? How long did Jesus exist before the world? Now, friends, there are people who get caught up in some fanaticisms today and they don't take the Bible as it reads. They don't rightly divide the word of truth. They think that Jesus existed when He was born of Mary. They misunderstand the word begotten. But how long before the world was? Look at Micah 5 and verse 2. This is, the, this is the prophecy of the coming Messiah. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Euphrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. From everlasting. God the Father is saying that the ruler of Israel, the Messiah, which was to be born in Bethlehem, was the same one that had been with Him from the days of eternity. 
You know, it's very hard, friends. It's very hard for us to imagine that God has always been. <laughs> Remember when my oldest son was very young and he asked me, where did God come from? <laughs> and you know, how do you answer a small child and say, God didn't come from anywhere, He's always been. As human beings, we can't comprehend that because we have a beginning and we have an end. And our dependence upon not having an end is in Christ. In our human speech, when we go as far back as we can, we call that the beginning, don't we? At the beginning. Jared said one time when he was small, back in the day. <laughs> you know, Dad, back in the day. But we call that the beginning. We go back as far as we can. The Bible says that in the beginning, God already was. <laughs> it's the very first Scripture in the Bible, friends. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God. These words re remind us of the fact that everything human has a beginning. God alone, who sits enthroned over the dimension of time, is without beginning or, or end. And these opening words of Scripture draw a striking contrast between all that is human, all that is temporal, all that is finite, and that which is divine and eternal and infinite. And our finite minds cannot think of the beginning without thinking of God, for He is the beginning. As it says there, in the beginning, God. God always has been. From everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. Now think about that. We go to John chapter 1. In John 1, verse 1, in the beginning, we have it again, don't we? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John here is making it very clear in speaking of the divinity of Jesus Christ that Jesus has been from everlasting. He goes on, verse 3, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Look at verse 14. And the Word, this Word that was in the beginning, this Word that was with God, and this Word that was God, John says in verse 15, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't get hung up on that word begotten, friends. 
It means in the Greek, unique, special, one of a kind. One with the Father. God. The fact that the Word was with God, that is, with the Father, emphatically declares Him to be a being altogether distinct from the Father. And as the context makes clear, the Word was associated with God in a unique and exclusive sense. The Word was with God in the eternity past, but He became flesh in order to be with us. He was Emmanuel. God with us. The great mystery. God with us. I mean, think about this, friends. A person would have to be God in order to fully reveal God. Because God is infinite. So no created person could reveal the Father completely. Jesus could do what no angel, what no created person could do. He could reveal the Father to us because He was always with the Father from everlasting to everlasting. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2. Verse 8. Paul here, he says, Beware! lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So he gives a warning here. Verse um, 9, he says, For in Him, this is Christ, for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Friends, if we had all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in us, we would be God. And that's an impossibility. But in Christ, in Him, Paul says, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, I'm going to tell you that many Christians do not believe this verse. I will tell you the vast majority of the Christians around the entire world do not believe this verse. Yet it's still in the Bible. We just read there. Ye are complete in Him which is the head. That is, the chief. The one who is in control. The head is the top of the body. Isn't that true? He is the head of all principality. That means rulers and powers. He's the head of it. He's above it. And within Christ dwells the sum total of the nature and attributes of God. This is what Paul is telling us. That's the mystery. The great mystery. All the offices and powers of deity reside continually in Jesus. In Him. All the fullness of God is revealed in Him. 
everything that God is, every quality of deity, dignity, authority, excellency, power in creating and, and fitting the world, energy in upholding and guiding the universe, love in redeeming mankind, forethought in supplying everything needful for each of his, crea- his creatures. All of this resides in Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in Him. I'm going to share this with you. It's from a Signs of the Times article entitled Child Life of Jesus. It says, In contemplating the incarnation of Christ in humanity, we stand baffled before an unfathomable mystery that the human mind cannot comprehend. The more we reflect upon it, the more amazing does it appear. How wide is the contrast between the divinity of Christ and the helpless infant in Bethlehem's manger? How can we span the distance between the mighty God and a helpless child? And yet the Creator of worlds, He in whom was the fullness of the Godhead bodily, was manifest in the helpless babe in the manger far higher than any of the angels, equal with the Father in dignity and glory, and yet wearing the garb of humanity. Divinity and humanity were mysteriously combined, and man and God became one. It is in this union that we find the hope of our fallen race. Looking upon Christ in humanity, we look upon God and see in Him the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person. Friends, scriptures are very clear. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. We look at 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And as being part of this great mystery, Paul talks about Jesus here being seen of angels. Now it's interesting that he puts that in there. What was it that was seen of angels that was so mysterious? Paul said, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Seen of angels? Well, of course the angels saw him. What's the mystery in that? Let me tell you something too. When Paul said Jesus was seen of angels, he was not only talking about God's angels. He was talking about the devil's angels as well. And the book of Revelation teaches that the devil has angels. There were angels that joined the devil in the rebellion against the government of heaven. Revelation chapter 12. We're familiar, aren't we, with this? Chapter 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, of course, Michael being Jesus. And his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. Who is that dragon? 
We're told that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And Paul said, Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. Part of this great mystery, friends, is that when Jesus came down to this world, He was manifest in the flesh. That's part of the great mystery. He's manifest in the flesh. The angels, the beings in the heavens, saw something. What was it that they saw? They saw what the great men of the earth saw, as described in Psalms 48. In Psalms 48, verse 7, verses 4 to 7, we'll read. It says, For lo, the kings were assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them there, and pain as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. Here they were gathered. What, what did the angels see? Jesus was crucified, wasn't He? Jesus was crucified during the celebration of Passover. Do you know that at that time there were, there were kings? There were representatives from foreign courts. There were nobles. There were princes. Men who exerted a wide influence in the world that were assembled from all parts of the world there in Jerusalem for the Passover. Psalms 48. These people witnessed the scenes of Christ's death. You know, we read the account, the accounts in the Gospel. We see, you know, many of the Jews read the inscription there on the cross. And it caused such a stir that the chief priests went to Pilate and they said, Please change what you wrote. Because it's having such an effect on the people. You've got to change it. He's not the king of the Jews. And it was at that time when the, the kings, the nobles, and so many important people were watching that God struck a blow that was felt and has been felt all over the world. These people took the tidings of Christ's trial and crucifixion to all parts of the world. God wanted all the people of the world to focus their attention on the meaning of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. And He foreordained that these kings and these princes, the nobles and the peoples would be in Jerusalem. We read it there in Psalms 48. He foreordained it so that they would know of the cross of Jesus. That is to be the all-absorbing theme, isn't it? Everyone in the world is invited to look. <laughs> Everyone is invited to study, to understand. That is to be the, the great center of attraction that we're to present to the world. You know, the angels of heaven want to understand what happened. Peter, when writing to the Christians later in his life, said the angels desire to understand this great mystery. They are in awe of it. 
God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. What was seen on Calvary? One of the things seen was that God's throne is a throne of justice. Isn't that true? Isn't that what was seen at Calvary? You know, many today have forgotten really all about God's justice. But the cross proves that our God is a God of justice. When His law is broken, the price has to be paid. It cannot be overlooked for lawlessness leads to suffering and death, friends. The sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross paid the price for our sin. It also restored honor to God's government. That's what's seen at Calvary too. Restores honor to God's government which had been under attack by Satan. You know, Satan said to God, you cannot be just and forgive the human race of their sins. It's impossible. You can't have both. And God said, yes, I can. The penalty will be paid and the human race will be forgiven. What we see at the cross, friends, is an unanswerable argument for sin. At the end of the world, the result of the cross upon the heavenly universe, upon satanic agencies, upon everyone in this world, will silence the arguments against the love and justice of God. And in making this infinite sacrifice, Christ exalted and He honored the law and the character of God. Isn't that right? I cringe when I hear Christians say the law was done away with at the cross. That means God has been done away with. Because the law points out the character traits of God. They are a reflection of His character. But there are many things that are revealed at the cross besides God's justice. When man rebelled against God, God could... He could have been just and righteous and destroyed every sinner in the world, couldn't He? He could have done that. God is just, but His character is infinite. It involves more than justice. It's merciful. And even though the devil claimed that God could not be just and merciful, the cross of Christ proved that God could be just and merciful. You heard the expression, justice and mercy combine at the cross. They're blended at the cross. Something else, the cross also proved that God is right and the devil's wrong. Was the penalty paid for sin? Yes, Jesus. Jesus paid our penalty. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God against a broken law. He exhausted the penalty so that you and I wouldn't have to pay the penalty. The cross shows that God is just and shows at the same time that He's merciful. It shows that His hatred against sin is as strong as death. Jesus still died. Jesus paid that penalty. But it shows that His love for sinners is even stronger than death. 
And when it's all done and God presents to the entire inhabitants of the world a panoramic view of the life and death of Christ, every mouth is going to be stopped. There will be silence. Every rebellious voice will be silenced. God will have done everything that He could to save each person. No one will be able to say to the Lord, you know, Lord, I had a a poor marriage partner. I had bad health or I had trouble in my job. No, friends. Every mouth will be silenced. And God's going to say, I did everything possible to save you. I poured all heaven out in my Son to save you. There were abundant opportunities for you to accept this gift of salvation. All you had to do was accept the gift of my Son. Commit your life to my Son and I would have helped you gain victory over your sins. The plan of salvation would have worked out in your life. Those who have rejected that gift, what are they going to say when the Lord presents to them millions of other people that were just as weak as they were yet accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord? He'll be able to show the people who had just as bad a marriage or just even worse health or didn't have a job. (laughs) All the kinds of troubles that you had and worse. Yet they committed their lives to Christ and He saved them. Why didn't you? Beloved, what will you say? The Bible says every mouth will be stopped. The cross of Jesus, we look at it there. It has a dark side and it has a light side. The light side is how much God loves you and me. God loves you enough that He would rather die than leave you lost, friends. The dark side is this. God's Son was permitted to endure the enmity of an apostate called Satan against the commander of all heaven. It was demonstrated what Satan was really like. That's the dark side. And this was predicted in Luke chapter 2. Verse 34, notice, says, And Simeon blessed them. This is when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus as an infant to the temple to be circumcised. There was a ceremony involved. Simeon had been waiting there. There was a lady waiting there as well. Simeon had prayed to God, Lord, before I pass on, please let me see the Messiah. God answered a prayer of this faithful man. And notice what Simeon says. It says, And Simeon blessing, blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. What did he mean by that? That the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Well, friends, when 
Jesus came. The character of God was revealed to the whole universe. (laughs) His justice, His mercy, His love for the lost, His kindness, His tact, His courtesy, His cheerfulness, His helpfulness, His tender compassion were all revealed in Christ. The character of God was perfectly reflected to us through the life of Jesus of Nazareth. The Christ. You know, even the thoughts of God are revealed through the life of Jesus. You realize that? God loves you so much that He would rather His Son die on the cross than you be lost. That's the great mystery. And this is impossible to explain. We cannot understand the love of God, but it is real. The life of Christ revealed the thoughts of God's heart towards us. The heart of the devil was also revealed. The heart of the devil had never been revealed before like it was when Jesus was on the earth. It was the devil that inspired the men who crucified Jesus. It was the devil that stimulated the people to taunt Christ and the Roman soldiers to mock Him. He persuaded Pilate to condemn Jesus to crucifixion even after Pilate said three times in the most emphatic language, I find in Him no fault at all. Yes, the thoughts of the devil were revealed. But that's not all. In the life and death of Christ, your heart is revealed. Did you know that? When you read the story, you'll take one side or the other. Either you accept Christ or you deny Him and become His enemy. You cannot be neutral. When you read the story of Christ, especially about His crucifixion, you have to go one way or the other. A choice is made. And Jesus said in Matthew 12.30, He said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. When you see that the devil has no mercy, but is only cruel, do you want to follow him anymore? That's what you see at the cross. Who are you going to follow? Oh, somebody says, I've never been following the devil. Oh, is that true? Does the Bible tell us who is following the devil and who's not following the devil? John does. He tells us. 1 John 3 and verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And friends, I'll tell you that's good news, isn't it? Jesus wants to destroy the works of the devil. He was manifested to deliver us from sin. You realize the people who are given eternal life will be people in whom the Lord Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil? He has delivered them from sin? Do you want to be a part of that group? Do you want Jesus to deliver you? I do. Sin is cruel. 
Sin is not something that anyone would want to have anything to do with. And we see when we study the cross, it would be better for us to lose our lives than to be involved in sin. Your heart is revealed at the cross, friends. Whose side are you going to choose today? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, seen by angels. As I close, I want to share this with you. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 185. The highest glory of the love of God to man was manifested in the sacrifice of His only begotten Son, who was the express image of His person. This is the great mystery of godliness. Beloved, is this mystery going to change your life? Are you studying about it? Are you thinking about it? Are you praying about it? It is beyond our understanding, but we serve a God of mysteries. We serve a God of miracles and a God that wants to work a miracle in your life and mine right now. The choice is yours. But a choice has to be made. The old saying is, not making a choice is making a choice. And in in this instance, that is true. The great mystery is Jesus Christ. Are you going to choose Jesus today and have that mystery revealed in your life? Pray that God works that miracle for you now. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank You so very much for Jesus, for the great mystery that has been provided for us. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be very present with us. Help us, Lord, to always look up to the cross, to see Jesus, and to be Lord, to make the right choice to follow Him forever. Please continue to bless us on this most holy Sabbath day. We ask humbly in the name of Jesus who is so worthy. Amen.